So this is uh, God's word. We believe that God ultimately is the author of scripture. And because of that, it has authority. Because of that, it has meaning and value, no matter what age of history we're in, no matter what is going on in your life. This is God's word for you tonight. So let's give it our attention. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'll read. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now let's move to 2 Samuel, the very next book in the Bible. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. Now therefore, this is God speaking. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house or a dynasty, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan, the prophet, spoke to David. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand this part of his word. Father, tonight we gather again and ask that you would tonight speak to us supernaturally, powerfully, sovereignly, as your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who oversees and upholds all things, comes to us and speaks in and through these words that tell this very ancient story. Help us tonight, O oh Father, to see how the story of David and how the idea of you as king affects and matters to us now, some 3,000 years later. Help us, Father, whether we be here tonight as skeptics, as those who doubt the truth of the Bible and the meaning of Christianity, 
whether we be here tonight as those who have, from the time we were babies, been in church and always known the love of Jesus and never known a day where we didn't believe in him, whether we be here tonight and perhaps for the first time in the past few weeks we've come to have an interest in spiritual things and in the Bible and in Jesus. Father, no matter where we're coming from tonight, spiritually or emotionally or psychologically, we pray that you would come and remind us again of what is most important and of what is true. That we are both a mixture of beautiful, image-bearing creatures who are at the same time desperately broken and needy because of our sin. And at the same time, you are both a God who is holy and just and cannot stand the sight or of impurity and a God who is loving and gracious and merciful to the thousandth generation. Father, remind us tonight that in the cross of Jesus, we see that our sin is a serious thing and that in the cross of Jesus, we see that you are willing to go to the greatest possible length to forgive us. Father, may we tonight believe, and will you use my words um, to help us all understand more the love that you have for us in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So this past week, as most of you probably know, was uh, election week in America. It's a big deal. Um, Probably most of you voted, and that's a fine thing. It's a very important part of our constitutional process, and there's a lot of great privileges, obviously, to living in a place like the United States of America. There are many worse places in the world where people could live. But there's one thing that Americans, by and large, really don't get or understand, and that is kings. Americans, as part of a constitutional republic, don't really have any category of living under a supreme ruler who is a monarch and whose word is law. Now, different parts of the world, even today, have kings. They live in sort of old-fashioned kingdoms. You know, our friends across the pond in Great Britain have Queen Elizabeth. She often doesn't have a lot of um, so-called political power. She's more just a figurehead and a sort of a pop culture fan, especially given her children and grandchildren at this point. Um, in Thailand, if you live in Thailand or if you've been to Thailand, you'll know that the king of Thailand is like revered like a god even to this day. It's, I'm pretty certain, illegal to speak ill of the king of Thailand right now in that country. There's all sorts of tribal regions in places in Africa where kings aren't beloved, but rather they are feared and despised and hated. Depending on what culture you're from or what culture you grew up in, your view of kings and of monarchies and of kingdoms is going to be affected. Most of us as Americans have no category for what it's like to live in a kingdom. Some of you might sort of have a long, long lost wish for what once was to live where there's a prince and a queen and a king. Some of you might hate the idea of living under a king. Voltaire, the 18th, 18th century philosopher, says that men will never be free until the last king is strangled on the entrails of the last priest. That's a good yearbook quote, by the way. Facebook update. Uh, hopefully none of you think quite as extremely as Voltaire did about kings, but kings, no matter what you think of them, kingdoms, no matter what you think of them, are a big part of the Bible. They're a big part of Christianity. Jesus, the first thing Jesus says when he came to this earth is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is a king, and all Christians live in a kingdom. 
As we study and are going through in just very brief order this idea of the story of God, the whole idea of the narrative of the Bible, we come tonight to the place in the scriptural story where kingship, where reign and rule become become front page news. They, they become a big deal from this point on. And so as we think tonight about the idea of the reign of God, the kingship of God, the rule of God over not just your individual lives, but over this entire creation, I wonder what that might mean for us now. I wonder how it might change and impact the way we think and the way we live. That's what we're going to look at. But before we jump into that text, let me catch you up. Because as we've been doing in this series, we're skipping about 600 years into the future from last week. Last week, we looked at Moses when he received from God the Ten Commandments. And we talked about the role or the function of God's law in the life of Christians today. Now, we're picking up the story hundreds of years later. Uh, If you remember in Exodus 24, which we read last week, the people of God received God's law and they said, this sounds great, God, we're on board. We're going to do everything you're saying. Very quickly, that proved to be false. The people did not do what God said. Moses himself did not do what God said. Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land. He died an old man along with his generation on the borders of the land that God had promised to his forefathers. And after Moses died, Joshua, his successor, comes along and they move into the promised land, the land of Canaan, which is in the modern day Middle Eastern world. And they took over the land. They drove out those um, evil oppressors who were um, taking the land and who were on the land at that time. And they set up Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And then Joshua died and things went really, really downhill at that point. If you want to read in the Old Testament what happens next, I'd encourage you to read the book of Judges, especially if you're a male. That's one of the best books in the Bible. I love Judges because it's just bleak and dirty and nasty. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of guts. Things are not going well for the Israelites. It's like a constant downward spiral. Century after century, the people disobey God. They're taken over by some foreign country. A judge is, risen, uh, a judge is raised up to rescue them, and then the same thing happens again. Again and again and again over the centuries, that happens. And then Samuel, who we read about here in this text, is raised up by God. Now, Samuel is both the last judge and one of the first prophets. He's a prophet because God speaks to him and tells him to say the things that God says to him to the people. And at the point in our story where we're picking up, Samuel is at the end of his long life as a leader of Israel. And the people of God are asking him for a king. And so as we think tonight about the idea of kingship, about the idea of the God who reigns, there's two points I want to make for you, two ideas to outline our time together. First, I want to talk to you about the king that we want. And second, the king that God gives. Okay, the king that we want and the king that God gives. So let's jump into the text. Look in your Bibles with me at 1 Samuel chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 8. And you see there that the story opens with Samuel becoming old, and it seems like his sons, Joel and Abijah, don't quite live up to the family name. And so the people come to Samuel and they say, listen, Samuel, you're a great guy, but it's time to throw you and your family out, right? We don't think your sons quite are going to measure up. Not only are they incompetent, but more importantly, we read there in verse 3 that they take bribes and they pervert justice. They are wicked. 
And so the people of Israel see a real problem in their midst. And they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, things are not going to be good once you die. We cannot have your two idiotic sons, your two recalcitrant sons taking over and running this ship into an iceberg. Something else has got to happen. And you know what, Samuel, as as we think about it, and as we look around at the Midianites and the Sidonians and the Philistines and these countries that border us, all of these countries have kings. They all have standing armies and their economies all seem to be flourishing. Their roads are nice and smooth. Things seem to be going well in these countries. And you know what? We've been talking, Samuel, and we think it would be terrific if you would just sort of let us boot your two sons to the side and install and anoint for us a first king, the first king of Israel. Well, Samuel, hears this news as we read there in the text, and we read in verse 6 that he is displeased. He does not like the idea, probably not because his sons aren't going to be in charge, but he thinks the idea of kingship in itself is very, very poor and a very, very bad idea. And so Samuel does a very good thing that all of us should do when we're distressed or upset about something. He goes to God and he prays. And he comes to God there in verse 7, and he says, God, listen, do you hear what these people are saying? They're saying they want a king. What should I do about this? And God responds to Samuel, and he says to him, Samuel, and this is the key for your understanding tonight. Samuel, you should do exactly what they say. You should give the people what they want. And here's the deal, Samuel. The issue is not that they are rejecting you. The reason these people want a king is because they don't like the king they have. Samuel, this is about me, God says. And the people, he says, have have rejected him at this point. Verse 8, from the time he brought them up out of Egypt, they've shown him time and time again through their complaining and their bickering and their idolatry that God is not a good enough king to satisfy their hearts. How foolish they are. And so they reject him. And they say, let us pick our own man. And God says at this point, let them do what they want and that will be their punishment. You ever felt like, have you ever felt what it's like to be rejected? Have you ever had a group of people or a club or a fraternity or a sorority or any social network that you really desperately want to be a part of? And it's very evident over time that you are not welcome there. Have you had any experiences in your life where you desperately wanted to be in a relationship with someone else and it became all too evident that they had no desire to be in a relationship with you? There's a movie that came out in the late 90s. Uh, it's a romantic comedy starring Drew Barrymore. It's called Never Been Kissed. Some of you have probably seen that movie. It's about Drew Barrymore having to go back to high school and relive her terrible high school experience because she's a reporter and people want to know what life in high school is like. And so she goes back and pretends to be this high school student again. And she's a really dorky kid when she was in high school. And as she experiences this second wave of high school as a reporter, she's reminded of what it was like for her the first time. And there's one, I think, very powerful scene in this movie, even though it's a romantic comedy and it's not meant to really make a serious point. There's one part in this movie where uh, sort of the, the big prince of the school asks Drew Barrymore's character out to the prom. 
He's this really good-looking, strapping young man. And she's amazed and overwhelmed and super excited, obviously, really dorky. Um, And she gets out in her sort of 80s-style prom dress and waits on the porch on prom night. And the limousine that her alleged date is in comes slowly driving down the road. But instead of stopping, the date pops up out of the sunroof with this beautiful woman who's his real date. And as the car is passing by, he takes two eggs and throws them and pelts her directly between the eyes, the eggs splattering all over her dress. And she falls down on her knees and begins crying. I haven't seen that movie in years, but I remember that scene vividly because because it haunts so many of us. That feeling of being repulsed and rejected by someone that we desperately wanted to know or be with or have a relationship with. Listen, that is, in a certain way, how God feels when Israel rejects him. Do you believe that? God is saddened and brokenhearted that these people whom he has gone to great cost to pursue are throwing the proverbial egg in his face and saying, we want no part of you. And listen, this story of the Israelites is a mirror of our own hearts. The king that we want is anyone but the king that we actually have. The king that we want is anyone but the one true king. Do you know that that's what your biggest problem is? I don't care what's going on in your life. I might not have met you once. I might have known you for years. But I can tell you for sure that the biggest problem in your life is that you are confused about who is in charge. The biggest problem in your life is that you want to be the king and you are not. The biggest problem in your life is that the king you need is not the king you want. Maybe you don't believe me. Let me just give you some examples of how that plays out. Say you're discontent. You're frustrated with what's going on in your life. You don't like your job. You don't like your school. You don't like your your marriage. You don't like any relationship. You don't like your church. You don't like the city. You don't like anything. And it makes you mad and sort of bitter and you have a low-grade anger all the time. Your problem, really, is that you think that the life that God the king has given you isn't quite good enough and that if you were king, everything would be better. Say you're impatient. You struggle to wait things out. You, you want to be good at this right now. You want to make this salary right now. You want to have this kind of marriage and these kind of children right now. But it's just not happening and it makes you Angry, sad, frustrated, upset, all at the same time. Your problem really is that you're saying to God, God, you are not doing this life of mine fast enough. If I were king, I would do it better. Say you're, uh, you find yourself often in a greedy state of mind or a covetous state of mind, like we talked about a little bit last week. You look around at what other people possess, at the houses they live in, at the cars they drive, at the jobs they have, at the women they date, at the men they date, at the sports that they play, at the games that they have, at the friends that they hang out with in school. And you think, 
If my life was like theirs, I would be happy. Really what you're saying is, God, I am not going to be satisfied with what you have presently given me. And if I were in charge, things would be better. Say you find yourself being judgmental and vindictive and looking down on people. So much so that you sort of think to yourself, man, I can't believe I just thought that. That was just bleh, you know? I can't believe I thought that about that person, but it, you know, it really is true. If that's going on in your life, basically what you're saying is that, God, I don't like the way you've made this person, or I don't think you've punished this person enough, or I don't think this person understands as much as they should. You're not doing a good enough job. If I was a king, I would do better. Your problem is that the king that you have is not the king that you want. You want to be king, but you would make a very, very bad ruler, and so would I. What's going on with the Israelites is exactly what happens every day on the insides of your heart. But God answers Samuel, and he says, give the people what they want. And so the people go and anoint this man named Saul. I didn't read about this, but that's what happens in the intervening chapters. And they make him the king. Saul's a very good-looking, impressive man on the outside. He's externally impressive, but he is spiritually regressive. On the outside, he looks vital and full of life and energy, but we come to see as the story progresses that he is dead on the inside. Things, because Saul is not the right man to lead Israel, get worse and worse and worse. The king that they wanted does not solve all of their problems, just like when you think you're king, all of your problems are not going to be solved. And yet we see, listen, and yet we see that God at this point does not just say, I told you so, Israel, and wipe his hands clean of them and stomp away. No, God enters back into the story. In the midst of Israel's brokenness, in the midst of this devastated nation with a mess of a ruler, and he says, this kingdom was a bad idea to begin with, but now that it's here, I am going to work good and grace through it. And so God gives us the king that we need. So that's what I want to show you. Secondly, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read about David, who is God's man to be king, having these promises made to him by God. The king that we want is so often ourselves or something else that we don't think God has given us. And yet God, instead of rejecting us, God, instead of rejecting Israel, gives us exactly what we need, even after we've messed things up because we didn't believe him the first time. And that's what we see here. He gives them exactly the sort of man that they need. The people reject him and God pursues. Can you just, just pause with me for one second and think about that? How would you react if you experienced the kind of rejection that God experienced from these people again and again and again over centuries? How would you react? I can't experience that kind of rejection for 10 minutes before I say, I am done through with this, out. But that's not what God does. God pursues a broken people with his never stopping, never giving up, unending love. We have some friends in, in Tucson, the city that we once lived in before we moved to San Antonio to start Christ Church. 
who uh, are very godly family, and their children are grown, and one of their children was a member of our church, the church that I served at there for a number of years, and had a significant period of rebellion about four years into my ministry there, and uh, kind of went off the deep end, and began doing drugs, and all sorts of, I mean, you name it, he was doing it. And uh, it got so bad at one point that this young man, probably 20 years old or so, was addicted to heroin and uh, addicted to meth and had been kicked out of his parents' house for their own safety and found himself sleeping in various public playgrounds around the city of Tucson. And yet, each night at about 9 o'clock, this kid's dad would get in his car and drive from one playground to the next, looking for his son, making sure that he was okay. Due to all sorts of legal circumstances, he couldn't bring him home. But he had not come to the point where he said, he's done, I'm finished with him. No, every single night for at least a year, and it might, as far as I know, still be happening now, he would go out and look for his lost son because he loved him. You know that that's the kind of God that we all have. That's the kind of king that really does exist and rule your life. He is a king who will come after you even when you run. And that's exactly what he does here in bringing the people of God, David, and David's dynasty. And real quick, I want to just show you three things here about the kind of king that God gives us. Because these promises here in 2 Samuel 7 that God makes to David are they're powerful promises. They're profound. These are some of the most important verses in the entire Old Testament. So real quick, three things that, that we can learn here, not just about David, but about God. Because ultimately these words, in the immediate context of Scripture, they're referring to David and even to David's son Solomon. When God says here, I'm going to make your enemies go away, he's saying in a few years, David, you're going to conquer the Philistines and these other nations. But ultimately, these verses are referring to the greater David, to the greater king, to David's son, the eternal one, Jesus. And so three things real quick that I want you to take home and remember because these things will change you. First, the kind of king God gives we see is a king who will protect you. Look there in verse... uh, 9, 10, 11, uh, 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, 2 Samuel 7. I will plant them so they, they may dwell in their place and what? Be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you what? Rest from all of your enemies. God is going to give a king that protects his people. Now that immediately in the context is referring to David. But ultimately, God is speaking here about the final king, Jesus himself. Listen, Jesus is the king who will protect you. He is the good shepherd. He is the one of whom it is said, I will not let a single sheep come out of my hand. He is the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is the king who has the power, the wisdom, and the grace to take care of you, to protect you, to make sure that your enemies do not overcome you. The kind of king God gives is a king who will protect. Second, the kind of king God gives is a king who is loved by God as a son. 
Look at 14 and 15. I will be to him a father. He's referring here in the immediate context to Samuel. And he shall, or to Solomon, excuse me. And he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, referring to Solomon, I will discipline him. But, verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. He's going to love Solomon. But ultimately, this king, Jesus, is going to be eternally loved by God. This text ultimately refers to your king, Jesus, who who is so close to God that he is a part of God. He is God. He has eternal, pre-existent life and love and communion with God the Father. God's promise here is so remarkable that he is assuring us that he will give us, he will give us himself. And that's how close this king will be to him. And he also assures us that through this king who is his only begotten son, as we confessed earlier, we too can be made his sons and his daughters by faith. That's the kind of king God gives. Third, the kind of king God gives is one who will rule forever. Isn't that clear there in the passage? We see that they're in 16 and 15 and other places, but namely the end of 16, his throne shall be established forever. That's why when Jesus comes onto the scene in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first part of the New Testament, the first thing we see there is that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the ruler of the kingdom that is never going to end. Jesus, because he is a king who has died and then been raised overcoming death, is the one who owns a kingdom that will never go away, never perish, never be destroyed, but indeed will last forever. And if you're a part of his kingdom, you will be a part of it forever. And one day, not now, it's not yet, but one day his kingdom will fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. One day his kingdom will wipe every tear from your eye. One day this kingdom and this king will put away all that is evil, all that is impure, all that is problematic, all that is painful. Can you imagine being a part of a kingdom like that? With a new body that will never experience tiredness, with new eyes that will never cry tears of sadness, but only tears of joy. With a new mouth that can never say anything wicked or negative, but only speak praise of God. With new life that will never run out, with bones that will never start creaking, with breath that will never get slow, with, with hearts that will never stop beating in a world that will never decay but will be perfectly beautiful forever. That is the kingdom that God has prepared for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. What we are now in our best moment is is much, much worse than our worst moment will be in the kingdom of God. And your worst moment there will be superior in every way to your best moment in this life. That is the kind of king, and that is the kind of kingdom that God gives his children. And he gives it to them for free. He gives it to them despite the fact that they want something else of their own. You see, God is gracious. He gives us Jesus. And he gives us Jesus' kingdom, and then he pays the full cost to bring us into it. And you simply have to receive it. 
embrace the gospel? Will you receive that Embrace the promises that God makes to you through the King, Jesus. Often in election season, you'll hear, you know, if the Democrats win, you'll hear the Republicans say this, and if the Republicans win, you'll hear the Democrats say this. Well, we got the, we got the president we voted for. Everything bad that's going to happen is going to happen because we're the ones that voted him in. We get the king that we deserve. You ever heard that? We get the president we deserve. That's very common and actually very true in the United States. But the gospel says that you get the exact opposite kind of king that you deserve. Instead of giving you the king that you want, and then when that goes badly, instead of giving you the king or the punishment that you deserve, God gives you himself, the perfect king that you need. And he asks you simply to trust that he has done it. That's good news. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray. Father, how gracious you are to us. Uh, Father, we read over these stories, and at first blush we think, huh, that's interesting. And yet, going just a little bit deeper, we see ourselves so vividly portrayed in the life of your people of old, the people of Israel. And yet, Father, we know that you are the same God now that you were then. We know that you gave Israel a king that they didn't deserve. Even when they had rejected you, you came to them again through David. And, Father, we know now that that merely anticipates what you have done for us. We run away from you and want to be our own kings. And instead of letting us just have our own way forever, you bring us back to yourself and make yourself ruler over us by your grace. How wonderful it is to live under your rule. How kind and gracious you are to allow us to live in your kingdom. Father, we pray now that you would enable us by your grace to believe that these promises are true and that they make all the difference in our lives. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.